0: My name is Heidi and I love stories. Funny stories and sad stories and what on earth just happened stories. As it turns out, the Bible is full of them. And after two decades in Sunday school and a master's in English, I'm here to tell them to you. Get ready, this is Messy Scripture. Moses, the servant of God, is dead. And God commissions Joshua to take over the leadership of the people of Israel. Now, this did happen back in Deuteronomy as well, but God makes it extremely clear to Joshua that he is in charge now. In fact, in the first chapter of Joshua, God says the phrase that's translated in English to be strong and courageous at least three or four times. Like, he's really, really driving it into Joshua that he's got to step up and, and be the leader now because Israel needs a leader and Israel is about to go conquer Canaan and Israel was bad at listening to Moses, so what makes Joshua think they're going to listen to him? Well, he's not really sure. (laughs) So he sends out all of the elders and has them, like, make sure that the people are going to follow them, and they promise to follow Joshua, which, you know, actually goes fairly well. I will tell you now, they are in some ways better at following Joshua than they were at following Moses. I suspect it's because they learned what happens when you don't follow And now that the people have promised to obey Joshua at least as well as they obeyed Moses, and they themselves encouraged Joshua to be strong and courageous, Joshua sends out a couple spies into Canaan to find out what's up. They did this 40 years ago, but it's been 40 years, man. Things have changed. Not only has Joshua gotten older, but, you know... Cities, walls, stuff might have happened. So he sends two spies into the land of Canaan and tells them to start with Jericho and to really pay attention to how Jericho's doing. It was an extremely fortified city with a very thick wall. When we think of walls now in modern times, in general, we tend to think of a more or less narrow structure that goes straight up. It's almost like a divider. The Wall of Jericho wasn't like that. It was wide enough to drive chariots across, and in fact, wide enough that people lived inside the wall. So when the spies go to Jericho, they actually stay with someone who does live in a house that is in the wall. Her name was Rahab. She was a prostitute. The Bible does not indicate that they were doing anything but spying while they were in Jericho. However, it is worth noting that they were staying with a woman named Rahab, who worked as a prostitute and who lived inside the wall. When officials from Jericho go to Rahab to find the spies, and certainly nothing else... Probably. Rahab tells him that the spies had come to her house. Yes, they were correct about that. But then they had just left outside the city gate, and that if they left right now, they might still catch the spies while they were in the wilderness between Jericho and the Israelite camp. However, she lied. She lied right through her teeth. Rahab had hid the spies on her roof underneath some flax that was drying, and when the men of Jericho left, she told the spies exactly why she'd done what she'd done. When it comes right down to it, Jericho was afraid. They had heard what had happened with Israel back in Egypt 40 years ago. This story is spreading, and it is spread far, and they are well aware that now that Israel is coming, there ain't nothing that's going to stop them. Now, at this point, they could have surrendered, but they didn't. So Rahab realizing that she is absolutely and utterly screwed if she remains on the side of Jericho, asks the spies if she can join Israel's camp, if they will spare her life and her family's life because of what she's just done, you know, namely hiding them. And uh, she makes it very clear in her conversation with them that the reason that Jericho is afraid is not because they think Israel has been doing CrossFit out in the desert. It's because they are aware that God is doing stuff for Israel and Jericho has no chance. The spies agree. They will protect Rahab, and when they come to take Jericho, what she needs to do is hang a scarlet cord outside of her window so that they can know where her house is, you know, from the outside of the city, and they will rescue anyone that's in the house. However, they are not to be held accountable if she doesn't hang up the cord, and they are not to be held accountable if uh, someone's outside the house. Like, basically, if Rahab has a family member, be it a brother or a child or anybody that goes outside of the house during the invasion of Jericho... That's their call, man. (laughs) There's absolutely nothing they can do about it. And Rahab agrees to these terms. As long as the spies are delivered safely back to Joshua, there's no worry for Rahab. So she helps them sneak out of the city, waiting for the gate to be closed and then lowering them down out of her window. Rahab is in a unique position to make this kind of bargain, not only because she lives in the wall, but also because she is a prostitute. As such, she has a job that people don't want to admit that they know about. Nobody wants to say that they go to Rahab. Nobody wants to say that they talk to Rahab. So Rahab hears all the tittle-tattle from Jericho, but isn't necessarily held accountable for knowing any of it. She's also not got much to lose. I mean, after all, it's not like Jericho's going to prioritize saving the prostitute. So what's she going to do? She's going to side with who she thinks is going to win. This is an opportunistic but incredibly brilliant move on her part. And when the spies return to Joshua, they tell him not only about this, but the fact that all of Canaan, especially Jericho, is shaking in their boots because Israel is coming. This does finally give Joshua some more courage. After all, if Jericho is quaking, this incredibly fortified, never going to fall kind of city. If they're scared, everybody's scared. Everybody's definitely scared if Jericho is scared. Joshua leads the people right up to the edge of the Jordan River, and after three days, he gives them orders to cross. The Jordan's a pretty wide, deep, not necessarily crossable river, so he gives them a very specific order on how they're going to cross. The Ark of the Covenant, carried by four Levites, because you can't actually touch the Ark with your hands, you have to hold it by the poles off to the side, are going to walk into the middle of the Jordan, and the waters are going to part. If this sounds a lot like the parting of the Red Sea, it is a lot like the parting of the Red Sea. The Jordan is going to stop flowing long enough for Israel to cross, and that will be not only a very effective way to get them into the land of Canaan, but also a very clear sign to everybody that Joshua is definitely God's anointed one now. Moses was great, but Joshua's here now, and that's who they've got. Lo and behold, the four Levites walk straight into the Jordan, and as soon as their foot touches the water, it begins to stop flowing. The water downstream of them just keeps going, and the water upstream of them begins to pile up. If you can imagine water piling up, it's such a cool moment. They don't understand how it's happening, and they don't really care. What's important is that God is stopping the water of the Jordan so that they can cross. So the entire nation of Israel, everybody, crosses by going around the Ark of the Covenant, which is giving them a way through where there was no way. And now they are in Canaan. Once they are in Canaan, Joshua is told by God to go into the river, send 12 men, one from each tribe. Surprise, it's another 12 men, one from each tribe situation. And to grab 12 stones out of the center of the River Jordan and to build an altar on its banks as a memorial for what God had done for the miraculous crossing into Canaan. Keep in mind, also, the Levites are still standing in the middle of the river with the ark on their shoulders, waiting for everyone to finish what they're doing. The 12 men go into the river, grab the stones, and build a memorial altar, which, at the time of the writing of Joshua, was still there and still standing. People knew where it was, and it was designed to be a memorial so that people could point their children to it. There's a lot of that in the Old Testament, especially in the laws, but here we actually see it happen as a miracle is being performed. This idea that you need to tell your kids what happened, that you need to tell people how god saved you in the past that you need to tell people about these things that happened and specifically the next generation like this information needs to be passed on and this is one of the very first memorials to that that joshua is told to build joshua makes it clear to the people of israel that they are specifically to pass on this information the memorial isn't good enough they have to actually tell people what it means why it's there and what it's for This might not surprise you, given Israel's track record in season one, but they didn't actually remember to circumcise everyone uh, while they were in the wilderness for reasons. And so Joshua, before he can start his military campaign, does two things. He makes sure that the entire new generation is circumcised and then also celebrates the very first Passover in Canaan. You might remember Passover from way back when Israel was slaves in Egypt. Well, this is the first Passover that they celebrate in Canaan. Definitely not the first Passover they celebrated. They've celebrated at least 41 prior to this. But this is the first one that they've actually had in the land of Canaan. And they use food from the land of Canaan. The right kinds of bread, the right kinds of herbs, the right kinds of meat. And once they make the Passover meal in Canaan and eat it there... It's when the manna stops. It's been over 40 years now, and there is no longer manna coming down from heaven, that special god bread (laughs) that falls on the ground. Now Israel has to forage and find food in Canaan, so they've got a little bit of motivation to get on this Jericho thing. At this point, Joshua, who is trying his very best to be strong and courageous, doesn't have a seriously clear plan on how he is going to conquer Jericho. Let me remind you again about the walls. They are very, very thick and very tall, and there's absolutely no way he can get around them. The gate is equally comparable, and uh, Israel is a foot army. They are all infantry. There is no cavalry, which means that they're at a distinct disadvantage in a siege, but they also aren't at a great advantage on planes fighting either. While they have a relatively large fighting force, they're not exactly this miraculously powerful army on their own, so Joshua is awaiting orders from God. And God shows up with the orders. Given Israel's distinct disadvantages, but also their fairly clear directive to go to Jericho and conquer it, Joshua is standing at this, outside the city, looking at it and probably scratching his head, when he sees a man with a drawn sword coming toward him. He asks him who the man is fighting for. Are you for us or for our enemies? And the man responds, neither. I'm the commander of the Lord's army and I have come. Joshua does the right thing here and falls down flat on his face in front of the commander of God's army, who then instructs him to take off his shoes because he is standing on holy ground. If this sounds like the burning bush, it's because it's very similar. A lot of the time, God mirrors things he's done in the past, not because he is repetitive or because he can't think of something new, but to make it super, super clear to the audience, or in this case, the people of Israel, that uh, he's doing it on purpose and that this this isn't an accident and that this is, in fact, him doing the thing. This angel gives Joshua the orders. The extremely fortified city of Jericho is prepping for a siege. They are completely locked up inside. The city is on lockdown. No one is going out. No one is coming in. There's absolutely no way for Israel to just, you know, bang down the gate. So the commander gives Joshua orders that make absolutely no sense unless you think about them being from God, in which case, okay, whatever your plan, I guess that will work. (laughs) Here's the plan. The army of Israel is to be led by some priests who are blowing on ram's horns continuously on a march around Jericho. They're to go around the city once every day for six days. While the priests are blowing their horns, the people are not allowed to say anything. No shouting, no singing, no talking, no nothing. Just marching. After six days of the just marching, they're to march around the city on the seventh day seven times. And after the seventh lap, they're to let out a really loud shout and the walls of Jericho are going to fall down. That's the plan. That's it. After all, if the city's on lockdown and the walls fall down, they're in a really bad position. So that's what Joshua and the people do. In silence, other than the ram's horns, they march around the city once a day, every day for six days. And on the seventh day, they do seven laps. After the seventh lap, Joshua gives the order and a loud cry goes out and boom! the wall collapses. Now, this is the part where you might wonder, but isn't Rahab, like, living in the wall? Is she dead now? No. See, the wall didn't collapse all the way around the city, because then the people of Jericho could just scatter. However, if you've ever seen the cinematic classic The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, you're aware that a big hole in a wall is a serious problem for the people inside, because they are now trapped inside by all the other walls. And that's how Israel conquers Jericho. They take it by force. The people are given very specific orders about what to do to Jericho. This is a complete destruction situation. There are only two exceptions. Anything that's made of gold, silver, bronze, or iron is to go into the treasury of God. So, basically, no looting. And everything else is to be burned with fire. The entire city. The only other exception, of course, is Rahab the prostitute and her family. Joshua sends the two young men who were previously spies and are now just members of the army to go rescue Rahab and her family, while the rest of the city is being utterly destroyed. All the people all the walls. It's burned to the ground, except for the gold, silver, bronze, and iron, which are brought into the camp and put into the treasury of God. The rest of it disappears, except for, once again, Rahab and her family. They are fully integrated into the Israelite camp, and Rahab is no longer a prostitute, at least at some point, because we know that she married. We know that she married absolutely certainly, because while she doesn't really appear in the narrative again as a character, like in the story parts, she appears a lot in the genealogies, And really, she appears in one very specific and important genealogy. The genealogy of Jesus. That's right. Rahab the prostitute, who betrayed Jericho into the hands of the Israelites, is a direct ancestor of King David of Israel and also Jesus Christ. There aren't many of them, but Rahab is one of the women who is given the honor of having her name included in the list of direct ancestors of Jesus and King David. Admittedly, one of those things is significantly cooler than the other, at least if you're including the New Testament. But for now, Jericho has fallen. Israel has just taken a significant financial payday, at least the treasury of the Lord has. And Joshua is suddenly a very famous general all throughout the land of Canaan. They know he's coming for him, and uh, he's coming pretty hard. Next episode, Israel's going to get back up to Israel's old tricks, but this time under Joshua instead of Moses, and this time in the middle of a war campaign instead of the desert. Yep, it's going to go exactly as well as you suspect it will go. You know, because it's Israel and because they're doing their thing. The rest of Joshua's war campaign and all of his exploits will be in the next episode of Messy Scripture. Catch you then!